I don't know any other company that's scaled to the size that we are that's maintained the type of quality that we have. And it has not been easy. It takes a lot of not accepting anything less than the best. And that can, I'm not always the most loved person in our company, you know, because I have to be the guy that's like, this isn't good enough. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Ted Lighty, founder of Alien Labs. Ted, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'll, I've listened to a couple episodes. I really like what you guys are doing here. So uh, big thank you for having me on. Yeah, excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Ted, learn all about uh, one of the strongest brands on the West Coast, you know, and help uh, educate the East Coast on the the West Coast ways, if you will. Yeah, one would argue also one of the strongest brands here on the East Coast also. So yeah, for the record, please, Ted, your location. Yeah, uh, we're located in Sacramento, California. You know, we operate in three states, California, Arizona, and Florida. And uh, we started in a little town of Redding, California, which is in NorCal. And now we're home based out in Sac. Awesome. Great. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, can you give a little background about yourself and kind of how you got started in cannabis and some of the origin days of Alien Labs? Yeah. So uh, in California, you know, cannabis has been a thing, you know, a a market, a culture, if you will, for a very long time, especially where I'm from in Reading. Um, I always joke with my friends that didn't do weed stuff that you there's two choices you can do to really support yourself, you know, nicely in Reading. And one of them is be a firefighter and the other one is grow weed and sell weed. So I chose the weed route and, uh, you know, here we are 10 years later, pretty much coming up on 10 years. And, um, you know, one of the strongest brands in California, we didn't always know what we were doing, but the moves that we made were right, you know, trusted our gut and just kind of went from there. And now we're a much different place. We partnered up with connected and they, you know, we use kind of their foundation to, uh, continue to build our brand. What was the the early days transition like from the medical market to like a full rec market? Well, Reading was banned. It was traditionally a banned city and county. So like what we were doing, you couldn't really hide under the guise of medical. Um, it was just pretty much straight up illegal, you know, or uh, I don't know if illegal is the right word, but it was just, you know, banned by the city. So when legal hit, we didn't really have any way to go legal. You know, we weren't, we didn't have the money. That's not really you know, we were making money, but it wasn't like that. It wasn't like the type of money you could use to spend and build yourself a few million dollar facility and do all the licensing. So, um, you know, Connected was one of the few stores that we supplied with what we did have. And one owner at the time and the founder, co-founder, Caleb, came to us and he was like, hey, we have a facility that you guys can occupy. And at the time I was partnered up with my then partner, Tyler Meeks, and we were like, damn, really? And he said, yeah. And so we we teamed up with Connected, which eventually led to our partnership. But at first we were just using their facilities and, uh, you know, they were doing all the back end licensing and selling a lot of it, which made it easy for us to, you know, do what we do best, which is grow good weed and, and brand good weed and kind of show off what good weed was at the time. It wasn't really defined as much as it is now, you know? I want to stay with the brand. Uh, one of the things that I liked about the aspect, it has a really calling on the demographic and who you're speaking out to. So take us through the the origin of the name, where did it come from, and, and who did you think about in those early days was really the the demographic for that. I moved to San Francisco from Reading. I don't even remember the year, but you know, early on in the medical days. And I remember going into these stores and just seeing how 
it, there was weed and big jars like deli style and it was unbranded. And I just remember thinking like, there was no way this was going to be how it was. And at the time, all there really that I knew about, you know, in my limited scope of it coming from just selling packs of outdoor to really kind of seeing that this industry is out there. All I really knew about was cookies, you know, and it wasn't a brand yet. It was just like a strain that a few guys had access to and they sold it and branded it. You know what I mean? But it wasn't like cookies yet. And one of the things that struck me about that was that like, it didn't really represent who I knew was growing the best weed, which was like up in Redding in the mountains and, you know, the, the outsiders, the guys that weren't just like freshly in it and showing their faces and all that. And that's where the name alien came from. Like it does mean, you know, aliens in space, but it also means like different and outside of what was, you know, fast forward 10 years later and it kind of became, I mean, aliens are cool as hell now they're popular, you know, UFO aren't even conspiracy theories anymore. And that was just kind of serendipitous. It wasn't planned like that, but it just became like the perfect way for us to kind of slide in. And, And I think that really contributed to like a lot of our success, you know. Yeah, hundred percent, and it's pretty crazy to think about the the origin of from like naming it Alien Labs and where we've come far, where they have they've announced that UFOs are real. So it's pretty yeah, wild, a drastic just, difference. The whole nerdy subculture thing that we try to kind of like pick up and run with is just popular now too. You know, like all the things that when I was younger, like video games and anime and just sci fi and all this, it it wasn't popular. It was like the weirdo stuff. You know, essentially, like you didn't tell your high school friends that you went and rented weird anime movies and shit at uh you know blockbuster but now it's like completely mainstream and like that is what's cool so it's just interesting to me how like we were able to kind of ride that wave you know into into success and into uh our brand being you know kind of a pop culture monster what type of products does alien labs have underneath its umbrella you know we specialize in flour and that's our number one product that's what we sell the most of that's what we you know care about and then we also, you know, we do fresh frozen. So we have vapes, we have rosin, we have edibles, pre-rolls, all the things that kind of come with, you know, using the byproduct of flour. And I love hash and rosin. So that's one of my passion projects. You know, it's not always the most profitable thing for us, but it's just something that we love and think that it's important to make and have out there. So uh, that's probably my favorite product in the lineup is the rosin. I smoke flour a lot more socially when I'm trying new stuff. You know, I smoke all the new things and smoke batches to QC, but day to day, hour to hour, you know, I'm smoking hash and rosin. It's just easier for me. I have young kids. I don't want to always smell like flour and blunts when I'm going to pick them up from school and stuff. So um, I think hash and rosin is kind of like a natural evolution of where people see themselves, unless you just really like the you know, ceremony of rolling a joint and smoking flour. I think the best way to get the most flavor and the, the best effect is is with hash and rosin. And so when you're making hash and rosin, do you guys typically just focus on using indoor indoor cultivation? Yeah, only indoor, uh, fresh frozen for the rosin. And then we're partnered with Calia. They make some of the best hash and rosin in the rec market and they make all of our stuff. Maybe eventually we'll bring it in in-house one day, but for now, you know, they do a great job with our product. Were you always a, an indoor cultivator? Is that kind of how you got uh, well, started? I started with, personally, yes, always indoor. But my family grew outdoor. And that's how I kind of got into selling, um, you know, outdoor weed is that my aunt and, well, my my aunt and my uncle grew on the house that I was born in. But then, you know, 
when I was in high school, my aunt and her uh, husband were growing just tons of outdoor. And uh, that's where I would get my packs and just sell them. You know, I'd get a good deal on them. And then, you know, story of a lot of us, just the family just born into it. You know, that's why it's oh, it, it's kind of like a, a product of where you're from. You know, like a lot of us are from the same kind of areas where, you know, NorCal, Humboldt, same, just that's where you cut your teeth and learn about this stuff. You ever think about like what the next generation, like when your child grows up and kind of the next reigns of like how far of like uh, we've come from like back when you started to, you know, let's say 30 years from now with your with your child? Oh, it, yeah, it's crazy. My daughter, that's what she wants to do. She always tells me, she's like, I want to go, I want to work with you, dad, with the plants. Like, cool. I'd love that. You know, we need more women in this industry that are killing it. Absolutely. So on another podcast, I've seen you talk about Tuesdays and Fridays, about the distros on Tuesdays and Fridays on the stainless steel serving trays. I'd like you you to share kind of the experience and like what you're looking for and kind of lay out the scenario for our listeners. So QC, every Tuesday I go to um, our distro center and I quality check every batch. Like visually, each individual section has a score. So it's nose, structure, color, trim, and moisture. And uh, each section is scored out of five points so if the nose they're actually higher some things are even though it's scored out of five like some things are weighted higher like you know a two in structure versus a two in nose like the two in nose is more important so it's like that could be something that automatically doesn't pass but sometimes a two in structure just means like it doesn't look normal it's a perfect batch of that strain right so it's like a two can be it's not the structure is different than normally is which would make it have a two but that doesn't make it bad necessarily but if a nose is a two that probably means like it's not good it doesn't have a nose essentially you know or one um and that would be an automatic fail but a two in structure necessarily wouldn't be so i score like yesterday there was 60 batches so i scored every one of them in uh about 100 pounds that was 600 pounds um and about 100 pounds didn't pass that was a huge QC, but so not every week is that much, but every single week we do a QC, it'll range from, you know, 20 to five to 30 batches, let's just say. And, uh, it's just about maintaining your, your quality. You know, you don't want your customers to get something that they don't want. If they go in and buy it and it looks different, they're going to wonder why, you know, and that's just not a good process for a consumer package, good company at the end of the day. And so what we're doing now is we're trying to build this out into a book so it can be taught, you know, because right now the knowledge is just kind of held within my head or Caleb's head or, you know, some of the other cultivation guys that have been here for a long time at a high level. And that's just not scalable, you know, especially in other states. Like I would love to be able to be in Arizona and Florida all the time once a week to QC every batch, but it's just not possible, you know. So now we're, it's like what we were doing today was, picking out nugs and stuff that were fives in structure and fives in color and fours in color and fours in structure for the photographer to take pictures of so we can uh, like put it in a little book so that I can go to Florida and say, here's your manual for QCing and, you know, teach them, run them through it a couple times so we can have the same strict standards that we do in California everywhere, which we already do. I mean, they, they pretty much know, you know, but we just need to be able to give them the context. Like if we send them a new strain, they don't always know that, you know, it's half green, half purple and it's pretty normal for it, you know, or if it's not all purple, then it needs to go back. When you say nose, you're talking about the smell of the... Yeah, the smell, right. Yeah. 
Is there ever any time where you feel like there's any biases where you're like, I don't really like the way that smells, but I think the industry would like that? Or do you kind of really layer it on what you think is best? No, I always, there's, I have strains that I don't like that we put out, you know? Uh, It's just, I understand when it comes to something like that's like subjective and objective quality, right? So like the nose for something should be loud. It should jump out of the bag no matter what. Even if I don't like that particular smell, it should still have like a certain level of loudness, you know, quote unquote, that should carry through everything we put out, you know, but sometimes the strength you'll get a batch. It just has no nose. Like what happened to this? You know, there's something that happened along the way that, you know, made the nose a little more muted. It was dried too fast. The drying process wasn't right. The curing process wasn't right. There's tons of reasons why that could be, but your job, you know, and my job as the person that holds these standards high is to make sure that I know that, you know, and, and that's why we need to find a way to teach these things to our other sites. So I don't have to do that all the time. Like I just got a batch from Arizona or, I mean, I went there and I, I QC'd a batch from Arizona and I was like, yeah, this is good. But the next batch was way better. You know, first time they grew it, second time you grew it, you can always see a difference in that. So I, you know, made the decision to hold back that batch and, and push the next one forward for the launch batch. Have you guys tried to tie quantitative results from like a GCMS to like what your objective opinion is based on the nose. Yeah. I'm asking, I've seen this done with like, there's a cake brand, but they're making a cake and like one in 14 people hated it. And it was because there's like uh, ruthenium in it. And they were able to determine this by, instead of ha- instead of using a GCMS, they had a nose detector on the other side of the GC, right? And so instead of running it through a mass spectrometer for the detection, they were just literally having a human. And the human's nose was the detector and they were able to determine all of the different qualities from like what was causing the cake to taste poorly based on that. So I just didn't know if you guys had. No, oh, yeah, we, about we definitely do. Like uh, we, you know, with the moisture, we have an in-house moisture meter. So like that, all those scores out of five, it's like really a one or a five. So if it's yeah. not one within those uh, parameters of like, you know, 8% is too low, you know, 9%, nine to 10% is kind of right there on the, on the edge. You really want it a little bit over 10 before it goes in the jar because it'll it, it like it looks like this like you put it in the jar and it kind of gains a little moisture from the stem from being in a small place but then it drops off like crazy so you want to be a little more moist than you'd necessarily want to smoke it when it first mm-hmm. goes in the jar but yeah so you know we talk about tying it to terpene percentage and the thing is is that those gas spectrometer it doesn't tell you the whole piece of the puzzle no, you're right show you the whole picture of the puzzle is what i should say yeah no and you're there's right there's something like 500 different cannabinoids and flavonoids and esters and so many different things that we don't test for and those things are really what give cannabis the complexity like terpenes tell you a little bit about stuff but I could show you a strain that tests 1.8% in terpenes and 3% in terpenes, and you would say that the 1.8% is louder all day. And it just comes down to what terpenes are present. And it's just not really telling you the whole picture. So that's why, you know, the human element is still so necessary in this. And I tell my partners and, and my friends all the time, like, if you could quantify what we did that simply, like, we wouldn't even be here because these huge companies with billion dollar budgets would have already figured it out, you know. It could be like the the Crown Royal model, right? Like there is one person who approves every batch of Crown Royal. Yeah, I didn't know that, but that's great. Yeah, yeah, she literally yeah. like goes and tastes it and like it's a it's a girl too, by the way. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah, she goes and she tastes it and like if she says it's not okay, it's not okay. And they make it massive, right? So she'll be like, I need 50 barrels of that, 16 barrels of this. It's pretty wild. So it could honestly the cannabis industry could just 
be that's the only way that it moves forward. Yeah, I mean, you know? on top of that, it's just like if you have people like me, you know, in in the business, it's like we kind of have been doing this long enough to where we kind of showed people what is and isn't good. You know, it's not just like I'm just an everyday person that's setting these, you know, it's like we kind of defined this as we came up at Alien Labs and, and you know, other brands too, not just us, but uh, definitely played a big role in, in defining what quality is, you know, and, and still are, are trying to do that, you know. So nines and tens go into the jar and do the others go into like a, a value brand? How does that work? Yeah, we have a brand called Misfits. And like, if it doesn't hit the QC marks, it'll go into Misfits which is, you know, cheaper. It's it's still great quality. But like, uh, for instance, if Y2K is green, we'll pretty much tend to send it to, to Misfits because it needs to be purple. That's a purple strain, you know. So if it's green, it's, it's going into Misfits. Um, if the nose isn't all the way there, it'll probably go into Misfits. Is Misfits and Alien Labs like brand? Yeah, it's Alien Labs. It's Misfits by Alien Labs. Just It's a Misfit, you know. It didn't quite make the QC uh, standards, but it, it wasn't bad enough to not actually put out. It was just, you know, that quality wasn't there to give it the premium price tag and the jar, you know, life. So I'm familiar with trends. And I know that you're not someone who follows kind of the industry trends. And when you're kind of making decisions, is it gut feel or another factor that helps influence? Um, we do. We look at data and like, for instance, we put out a sativa recently. I'm not like a sativa guy, you know, but people were loving them. You know, there was a few like three in the top 10 selling strains and we didn't have any. You know, we didn't have any haze lineage. We didn't have any, you know, kind of what people would call sativa. I mean, I know that there's like, you know, words that whatever, there's like controversy surrounding these words. But I think when I say sativa, people kind of know what I'm talking about, right? And uh, that's why I continue to use those words. But so, yeah, we didn't have anything with like a haze that people would consider like, you know, more of an up feeling. Uh, so we put that out and it did really well. And that's like, goes back to what I was saying, like not everything I necessarily like, but I know it's good. I don't have to like something to know if the quality is there. You know what I mean? I, I can understand that not everything is for me and uh, my taste isn't everyone's taste. And I think that's important when you're putting together a menu, especially is to understand that like your taste isn't everyone's taste. I had, This really, you know, hit home with me with uh, clothes because, you know, we do the apparel line and I pretty much I've added some color into my wardrobe since I started thinking like this. But like, I pretty much just wore black all the time. So like all the tees that came out would just be black. And it's like, oh yeah, that was like my design brain. But then when I started opening it up to like thinking like, damn, I can't just design for myself. You know, I got to design for everyone that buys shit. So we started adding colors in and people love color, you know. Do you guys launch a different menu in different states or do you notice a different like this strain does well in Arizona, it doesn't do so well in California? Do you guys like um, that kind of stuff? We try to launch, you know, every strain in every state, but like it's slower, but... Yeah, like, I mean, I think people in California just kind of, like, get over things faster. So, like, a strain's life cycle is, like, a little less than it would will be in, like, another state where, like, people haven't experienced anything like that yet. We haven't grown melanade in California in a long time, but in Arizona, you know, they love it, so. What flower qualities do you think consumers should be paying more attention to? Freshness, they, on the package, for sure, that's huge. And that's, you know, um, stores will overbuy sometimes, and they don't understand how much they can actually sell through and then when our customer gets it it's like two months old three months old and it's like oh that's not it's not bad i mean you know it can be good it really depends on how it was stored but generally i think premium and fresh kind of go hand in hand you know are you testing all the products that you're putting out and if if so are blind testing correct 
Yeah, I do both blind and uh, and knowing. We do blind tests like together, like the group of us will get together and do blind testing. But biases are always there. They're, they really are. It's crazy. But once you know that and you try to like choose around it, that's why it's important to do both things, right? Like we we're just about to come out with uh, indoor vape pins and you know, we thought the temperatures were good on the on the product. And then we did a, a blind test with all of us. And it, we determined that we needed to lower the temperature a little bit. And it was just a little too harsh. But that was like one of those things where I thought it was good enough. And then we learned that, you know, to be better, we all kind of came to the consensus that it could be lower through the blind testing. Have you always done the blind testing as a way to evaluate? No, that's new. We, we have an R&D team led by... Uh, Jonathan, Carol, and he's just great. He comes from Cornell. And he really put this together for us, the whole trials thing. You know, the um, I love it. It's awesome. It's very fun. It's just different. And then I think, like, even just QC, like, it's so funny how, like, I see people throwing around these words like QC and R&D, and I don't feel like they did ever before we started talking about it. You know, like, especially QC, like, I don't think that was really, not to say it was non-existent, but, like, the way people talk about it now is so... Like, oh, yeah, like Alien Labs started doing QC and now we we talk about this a lot, too, you know, and I, I think at where we stand, kind of that's our position in this industry, like we do things and then they just kind of become standard for people that are trying to scale their company and uh, make quality products. Is it challenging to try to scale and grow high quality flour? Very challenging. I mean, I would say that like, we're not the only ones, but we're definitely the best at it. Like there, I don't know any other company that's scaled to the size that we are that's maintained the type of quality that we have. And it has not been easy. It takes a lot of not accepting anything less than the best. And that can, I'm not always the most loved person in our company, you know, because I have to be the guy that's like, this isn't good enough. I'm sorry, but like, it's just not, you know, and I'm okay with that because like people, our name is, you know, pretty synonymous with quality in this, in these markets. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's possible to scale the quality that you can do in like your garage with a four lighter to like, you know, multiple states and, and multiple thousands of lights. Like, I just don't know if, if it is, I think we'll be the first people to do it. But as of this moment, like, I still think, you know, people in the black market are growing super fire. You can just give individual love to each plant. It's just, it's, it's crazy. And I, I love that. I mean, I love, that's great. You know, what do you think the biggest challenge is to scale from the four lighter to like that you guys have experienced? And- um, just dynamics within like everything's more expensive now. So you have to get the shit out. You have to turn and burn your rooms. Like there's no waiting. You can't, you know, drive for maybe as long as you wanted or, you know, individual hand watering is always going to be, you know, probably better in my opinion than uh, just because of the little spouts that you put in there, the drippers, you know, you're not really getting that whole surface area wet. And really the drying and curing, I think, is the toughest thing. And then, you know, waiting on test results and, and then jarring it and having it sit in places where you're not in control of the environment. You know, those jars that we put our weed in, they're not like environment proof, you know. So eventually they'll equalize to what the humidity and the temperature is where they're stored, you know, which we're not in control of. So uh, that's tough. But when you have four lights and you come off with, you know, eight pounds, like those go to the people that smoke it, you know, pretty much right away. There is no waiting period. They're not sitting on a store shelf, you know, degrading. And that is also the freshness. Like they're not, if you have eight pounds, you could sell one pound to eight different people. And those things are going to be gone in two weeks. And then in two weeks, we're probably not even on the shelf yet from being packaged. You know, so the quality, like I said before, the quality and the freshness go hand in hand. And 
the black market is always going to win when you're regulated as heavily as some of these states are in, in that regard, you know, in regard to freshness. You think that's misunderstood by, you know, let's say most of the people in the industry or people outside the industry, they just don't recognize how many steps go in and some of the challenges with, with growing high quality flour. Oh, scale. yeah, definitely. They just, you know, they think it's the same and it's just not, you know, we have to wait for weeks and move things. You can't, you know, if you don't have your uh, cold, if you don't have a distribution in your cultivation center, then you, it has to be moved. So you have to pick it up and put it in a truck and move it. And that's just all different, you know, temperature and relative humidity going up and down and just then it take it to the distro center where you store it, you know, cool and package it up. And then, you know, it goes to a store or, you know, another distro center. And then that's just three touch points where you're going from A to B with a, with a, in, you know, a home grow or, you know, something like that. It's not like so many touch points. How long or how long away or how far away do you think we are from like uh, an experience where you can go to a, a facility where they're growing the cannabis, they cut it, you can consume it right there, kind of like an all-inclusive experience, if you will. You know, I'm thinking of like Sierra Nevada, if you've ever been yeah, there. Yeah, no, totally. You know, I think Maine just released some new legislation that like makes it more like a... Uh, like a vegetable or fruit. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like that experience. You know, what I'm yeah, I, I have this idea. You know, this this idea for an experience. It's like Krispy Kreme. Like you get <laughs> exactly like hand rolled joints that were rolled and ground that day, and there's a fucking light on in your store window. It's like fresh rolls. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And like, there's no state right now that you could ever do that in because it's just not. You have to grind you know you roll it up and you send it to testing and there's all these different steps where you can't make things as fresh as they need to be but like how cool and and that's why i think a big part of the reason why the traditional market still exists and still beats the, the recreational market because they're just the regulations artificially add time they they keep you from doing things that are like like that you know where you get fresh rolls or freshly pressed rosin like imagine that like a jar where you you freshly press your rosin i remember in the 215 days, Jungle Boys would press your shit right in their store lobby. You know what I mean? And you'd get that right then and there. And I think we need more of that, especially if we're going to see more innovation. I feel like, you know, as much as it's regulated, that stifles innovation. So like, we're going to be here where we're at for, you know, quite some time unless things change in that regard. You know, these states kind of, I was hoping that New York did a better job of learning from the mistakes of some of these other states. And it just doesn't seem like they did. And when I see, you know, my boys out in New York going to real licensed stores just to check them out, it's like, Oh, $110 for a distillate blue dream cartridge. And, you know, $70 for a distillate gummies. It's like, you guys dropped the ball. You had every Colorado is and California to an extent also have like excuses for being bad. Right. Yeah. And like these new states that open up, they don't have an excuse. They've seen it done and they're not learning from that. And I think that's like the one of the the cons, right, of the state by state process instead of um, just the whole entire United States saying, hey, OK, this is what we need to do, even though they would fuck it up, too. So there's no doubt about that. But at least if each state isn't different, that makes it hard for, you know, like a operators in each state to go because like Florida is so much harder to not harder, but it's just so much different branding. Like you have to have a white jar with black, uh, you know, font and there's no logos and none of that. Where in California, we're pretty much free to do whatever the hell we want to do, you know? So it's just like, that's another thing that just like, isn't great for what we're trying to do here. Like having to go to each state and learn those regulations and, 
and take what we do in California and turn it into something that's, um, you know, legal in Arizona, for instance, just like it's the state by state process just isn't great. It is not great. And the one area I will push back on for New York is that I don't think we have opened up yet. I think when you have only five stores open, I don't think you can classify yourself. as oh, I completely up yet. Agree. <laughs> but, Even just though, like not having indoor licensing yet, like what that's doing is because they're not going to have a lower price product. Like if they set out and it was in, okay, indoor licenses are go greenhouse licenses are go outdoor licenses are go. You, they would have settled at like 80, you know, 50, 30 or whatever, like, like they did in California. But now what's going to happen is greenhouse weed in New York is $80 an eighth, right? I mean, 80, 90 bucks an eighth. Well, how much is indoor going to be? 120 bucks? 110? <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, we're going that, the wrong direction. Yeah. Exactly. And that is $15 in Colorado. You buy two eighths, you could pay for your plane ticket. You know, (laughs) foundationally, that is baked right in. That's wrong. That's just how it it shouldn't have been done that way, right? They should have had the foresight and understanding to, uh, to stave that off where they, you know, opened up either, you know, don't do this trickle down where it's like, oh, one store gets to open every three months, you know, or, um, Versus somewhere like California, where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to open up the whole state and start giving licenses, where still there's not enough stores. I think there's only like a thousand, but it's much better than having five where, and then, you know, the, those one stores get all the press when they open up from huge places because New York's just a media, you know, playground. When, you know, a year from now, when there's 700 stores, it's like no one's going to really care. So it's like, it, it seemed rigged in a way that wasn't like, not good for the consumer, you know. I have a, a random question. So you operate in Arizona, which is probably as starkly different from a, a market opening perspective than New York. Has there been any like catastrophic errors or or hiccups when they transition? Because they transitioned in seventy days to a rec market. Yeah, right? it wasn't too long ago either. Has there been any like really big problems there from that quick transition? Different. The difference between medical and recreational is theater the people that made the rules made it slightly different. That's it. You know what I mean? So Arizona was a good example of a, a place that went from rec to or medical to rec, like really easily. And I think um, we'll see what happens in Florida this year. I think maybe they'll try for rec. I think they're close or they already gathered enough signatures to get it on the ballot. Do you think that transition will be as smooth as Arizona's? I don't know. It's tough to say, dude, Air, or Florida's a, a different beast, you know, especially with, the government that is in place there, you know, they're, they don't, it's going to be an interesting time for sure. You know, what I do like about Florida though, is if you get your license, you're good. You just can pop up your stuff. You don't have to, you know, so in that regard, it's like a better licensing system, but then there's no, you know, no vending. Essentially you can't just be a cultivator and and sell the stores. You have to be fully vertical, which is tough. And then obviously the price of the license is just insane, outrageous. So the good part for you in Florida is that you've got a pretty premier partner in Truly, but like for you to talk about kind of that partnership and why you thought that was a good one to, to take. Yeah. You know, Truly was just proven that they can operate. And just like us, we, we wanted to be able to do what we do best and do, you know, have the best product that we could possibly have reach the most people, which, uh, you know, if we don't have a lot of capital, we're not that kind of company where we're out raising and just, you know, spending money like that. So going into situations that we can do the most with the least is really like what we want to do. And in Florida and truly, truly just helped us get there in Florida. 
Um, you know, they have 120 something stores that are just, you know, great. And people out there love California cannabis. It, it, it's a good match for us, for sure. Absolutely. And one of the talking points we've seen a lot is that MSOs grow shitty pot. Now, with your partnership with Trulieb, can we expect that Alien Labs quality to kind of be in Florida? Yeah, definitely. You know, we um, we sent some growers out there. They work for Trulieb now and, and they built our buildings to our SOPs, our spec, our cure and dry to our spec. And it's just different. You know, uh, what we do is just different. And, and that comes from just that knowledge of us doing it for so long. It wasn't we learned the hard way, you know, we set up and failed and set up and failed until we figured it out. Right. And, uh, I think we also just helped out truly in that regard, by kind of giving them some tips and pointers, you know, I think their quality, um, has gone up since we've been working together too. Do you guys have fundamentally different like cultivation SOPs? If for, for instance, in Arizona, desert, very dry versus Florida, very, very humid, right? So I know you're cultivating indoors, but does that change the spectrum? Uh, not the really. It doesn't really change too much. You know, you, you might need more humidity or uh, more dehumidification in Florida or you might need to add some in Arizona, but it's pretty much the same everywhere. Testing is kind of different everywhere too. You know, it's funny to see strains in, in California go in mid-30s and then that same strain in Arizona will be 22. And it's like, this makes no sense, but... It does make sense because, you know, it's it's the the testing labs, like, they don't have a standard. So there's no, if the testing standard was the same in the whole country, you would see the similar numbers. But since, like, some states require to do this and some states require to do this, you just see different numbers everywhere. It's crazy. Just quickly going back to New York, I just wanted to get your perspective for those who've been in the unlicensed stores and have seen your products everywhere. Is that something that you feel good about, bad about, not really sure, but it's one where I've got friends all the time who say, oh my God, I just scooped this Alien Lab product, but I understand with your feeling of quality, it must be challenging in knowing whether or not it's a legitimate product or not. How do you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, I like. I mean, I don't mind at all. It's cool that people were sought after like that, you know, but a lot of that is fake and that's tough. You know, it definitely hurts your bottom line when there's people out there. I see all day, every day, people sending me like, I bought this cartridge. I'm like, where'd you get it? And they're like, oh, I got it here. And I'm like, send me a picture of it. And it's like, oh, well, that's not even real, dude. Like we don't make full gram all in ones. That's a problem. Or that's a uh, a common tell. Like I see full gram all in ones a lot. It's like, we don't even make those here in California, dude. We don't make full gram. So if it's a full gram, it's fake. I see knockoffs of the fonts off. But then I see the real stuff too. You know, people come to California and buy their store out and take it home with them. You know, so it's just crazy. Um, but I think it's cool. I'm I'm not, you know, we don't hate it. It's, you know, prime in the market for when we actually come there. You know, yeah. I mean? I mean you're building you're building brand presence in a state that is desperately seeking out California products. Yep, exactly. And California products, you know, there are the best. It's there's no competition. I, we talked about this a little bit um before we got on, but uh you know, it's different. People don't understand that like California has had this market and people have sought after the weed for years, 30, 40, 50 years. You know, it's not just like something that is new because California legalized or whatever. It, it, it's well known as having the best, the best stuff and and the most innovative strains and, you know, the most innovative everything in it. And that's, you know, can't really be replicated by another state you know, like Oregon or no one's asking for Oregon packs. No one's asking for Oklahoma packs. You know, they want the the California stuff. So um, I think it'll be really interesting when that opens up, if it opens up federally um, to see where the price of, you know, sought after California 
cultivators and brands. You know, New York has a store that gets fresh deliveries every morning of, you know, connected and alien labs products. Like I think that'll probably be a pretty a destination. You know what I mean? Can we beat 120 and 8? Yeah, I don't know, man. That's crazy to think about, but gotta be good margins right if you're on the other side <laughs> yeah i mean it, it must be for sure but like whew, i don't know it's interesting I mean, you, scale, you learn that like 120 and 8 is cool but you know you'd rather just sell all your shit for fucking 80 than have it sit you know for sure let's do a quick rapid fire number one home grow tip have enough dehumidification and air conditioning the the environment is important most important maybe true or false you had a brand called Revolution. True. It was like the first brand I ever made. Uh, it was like when I was in sophomore, maybe freshman year. I don't know. I like it. Sativa Indica Hybrid. Think it should stay or go? Um, I think it should stay because it's just already known. And I think like trying to come up with new nomenclature for something like that, just who has time for that? You know, customers like our customers don't really care to be educated that much anyway. Some do. I mean, you know, very few, but. Like, just stick with what you know, stick what people already understand. It, it, if if we're going to educate and, and push something like that, it should be on, you know, THC percentages and stuff like that. I, I think it's just a fool's errand to try and change naming conventions at this point in the, you know. Dream smoking session, three people dead or alive. Ooh, that's a tough one, man. Um, damn, I don't even know. Holy shit. Steve Jobs, for sure. Um. Tupac. And we'll just throw Biggie in for my New York fans, you know? I love it. Besides OG, one strain for the rest of your life? Um, Skittles. What's the strain you're giving aliens on their first experience to Earth? Uh, OG, for sure. Without a doubt. CBN Alien Lab edible in the future? Yeah, we were working on one for a while. Definitely, it's there. I use CBN a lot. I, I every night. I think it's called Kana. They have a five milligram CBN, five milligram CBD, five milligram THC. That's really good. And then um, the I don't know what the name of the brand is, but they're called Knockout, and I think it's twenty milligram CBN, twenty milligrams THC, and they, it just makes you sleep really well. It really works. It's effective as hell. Under the radar state, you have your eye on. Hmm. Good question, man. I don't know. Uh, Maine, I think that new legislation in Maine is pretty cool. You know, if I just, I don't know if it was released recently. I just read about it this morning though, but it just treats it like a agricultural product, which is how it should be. You can pop up at farmer's markets with your homegrown, you know. Be sick. What is the most expensive lesson you've learned in cannabis? Ooh, choose your partners wisely. <laughs> what do most not know about Alien Labs? Probably that we just start, really started from nothing and came from nothing, you know. We both, me and my former partner, came from just poor households. We just really made this from nothing. And if if we can do it, I, I think the big lesson that I've learned is that you can do things if you just you know put your mind to it. And really, I, that's so cheesy, but it, it is true. And especially when you see what Alien Labs has done from you know not having much, uh, it's something to believe in. You know, when you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right, and most importantly, what did you get wrong? Um, we got right the quality, but we got wrong just, um, damn, I don't know. We did really good at both things. It's crazy. Both the main things that I think about, but not having the foresight to like save money and, and, uh, you know, we we're trapping, we weren't like 
trying to make it legal and trying to go legal like that. Or, you know, we didn't know how rec was going to play out. So it's just like, if you're doing this and you're having good success, like save some money so you can, you know, not have to get investors and not have to, you know, get percentages out and those things. Cause that can, it went really well for us with connected, but I've seen, and I'm sure we all have seen like plenty of times where it didn't work. I, I think we're like the, you know, the 1% in that, in that manner. You could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would it be? Man, do what you love and, and just, you know, uh, be confident in it. That separates people for sure. Separates businesses, you know, stand on what you're doing. All right. Prediction time. Ted. When interstate commerce happens, does this alter how you think about branding and positioning for newer consumers? If so, how? If not, why not? Um, not so much. We haven't really been the type of brand that like changes who we are for that type of thing. You know, we're we're known for quality, and I think quality will stand anywhere, any state. But I think if I were to build like a newer brand. Uh, in that case, like if, if I went out and built a new brand, it would just be more appealing to women. I think women are just left out of this a lot. It, not to say that like Alien Labs is a masculine brand because I don't think it is, but I think that's part of the success, right? Is that, is that it's kind of like, um, gender neutral, if you will. But I think women, you know, they're, they're a big consumer and they're the next big consumer base and, and companies should be catering to them in a way that's non pandering. Like I don't think. Like I would make a brand for women, but I think that I would um, encourage and and uh, you know help a woman make a brand for women. I think that's just a big thing that is being missed right now in our because um, there is some right, but it, it's mostly like corporations saying uh, we need to make a brand for women, you know, and not like empowering women to make brands, which is what I think that we should be doing. Well said, Kellen. Um, I think, uh, the only big transition I think that interstate commerce could potentially have on brands is in terms of like appellations, right? And so I think that like with champagne, right? Like that whole lawsuit and everything, like technically champagne is that grape that's grown in Champagne, France, right? And makes sparkling white wine, right? Uh, <laughs> right. And I think that that will happen with cannabis eventually, right? Especially with interstate commerce. And I think that that just plays into brands like Alien Labs who have that kind of founder story from uh, like, you know, an Appalachian like the Emerald Triangle, if you will, who's been doing it for multi-generations. I mean, like uh, some of the, the conversations we were having before, right? In terms of a multi-generation family farming the same land, like that's, that's the American dream. And just because it's cannabis, yeah. it's kind of looked at in this like, this kind of weird lens, if you will, and it, and it shouldn't be, you know what I mean? Like, I agree. You know, you go just on the other side of the Sierra Nevadas over to Sonoma, and there's people that have been growing just a different type of plant for multi-generations on land in the hills too. You know, the only difference is one makes alcohol and one makes cannabis. So I don't know. That's my opinion on the whole interstate commerce. Uh, yeah, the terrier or whatever it's called, like the, you know, humble cannabis will be hugely sought after. You know, hopefully, if the industry isn't decimated by then, um, yeah. Hopefully, if there's still growers up there, yeah, exactly, because that 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 area is suffering, man. They're, they're so bad, big, so bad. It's sad to see, you know, someone that I was going there my whole life, you know, and uh, 
I go there now. I'm like, damn, I hope you guys can survive. Like, and show the bear some support, people. Yeah, agreed. I think, in my opinion, that when interstate commerce happens, that companies are going to really need to lock in on who they are and what they do best better than anyone else. And I think what you said, Ted, about not being the most popular person in the room, I think is incredibly critical for adhering to that high quality standards when people get an alien led product. Because I think there are a lot of companies out here who are still trying to figure it out. And that's going to lead to a, a big mass extinction for those companies who don't do anything well. They're just kind of like navigating along. And I think understanding your North Star, what you do better than anyone else. And sometimes that means making a not popular financial decision especially for a company like yourself who operates in California, I think is really going to want to separate the... Yeah, I completely agree. A lot of these companies are doing like a bunch of things not that great. And yep. once there's actual competition out there, you're going to have to focus on what you do best like we do, which is this flour. And, you know, the, the rest of the things come with, with having great quality flour. But if you're trying to grow and, you know, make edibles and produce extracts and have hundreds of stores, it's going to be tough once there's more competition out there. Absolutely. So for Ted, for our listeners, they want to get in touch and they want to buy Alien Labs products. Where can they find you? Uh, we're in, you know, 500 stores in California. We're in damn near every store in Arizona. We're in True Leave stores in Florida. Um, our website has apparel, merch, more more uh, places to find us for the, the cannabis side. And, um, you know, DM me on Instagram, Return of the Alien or Alien Labs. Both of them, you know, they get to me. If you have questions, I'm always, I try and respond to every DM. So. Cool. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. That is great. Thank you. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network. Network.